Let's do this. We're going to pick up where we left off. We've been talking about the identity crisis inside of the church today. Is what makes the church the church? Because you have a church and then you have the church. And there is a distinction. Because a church is any, basically, gathering of individuals that come together with a distinct purpose, which really means that anything could be considered a church. As I told you guys last week, there are now atheist churches. Um, there's all sorts of weird stuff that's going on out there, you know? And they take the term, because you know why? The number one reason why is the tax exempt status. They, they want to do that. It also has a, a dealing with the whole religious freedom aspect in our Constitution by calling themselves a church that can go against biblical things and all that. There's just a whole bunch to it. But a church and the church, not the same thing. A church is a gathering of individuals that come together. We are a church, but we are a part of the church. And then you have the church and the church. Right? Isn't this fun? Because the church, which is the assembling of the saints together, those who are truly followers of Christ, is a distinction between the assembling of people together who take on the name of Christ. Like, just say it. Like, I am a Christian. I am whatever. But I can believe anything that I want. I just read something this week. This article got sent to me. There is a church in California, so you probably know where this one's going, right? It could be anything. It's just crazy. A church in California where the pastor and his wife, I'm trying to remember exactly. I'm going to get this wrong. I don't remember what he was doing. He was doing something, but she's a porn star. Yeah. I don't know how those work together. But apparently... That's what's going on. And they're like, oh, we're just being inclusive. We love everybody. Yeah, so do we. Stop being a porn star. <laughs> you know? But this is where we are. This is the world we are. And they call themselves a church, and they take on the name of Christ and what separates them from maybe us. You could make the same argument in a lot of ways. You could take Westboro Baptist Church. Let's talk about them for a minute. We haven't actually heard about them in a long time. I don't, unless it's just I live in a hole somewhere. I don't know. Maybe the Internet stopped working in Rockport, and I'm just not catching on the news. But... Westboro Baptist Church takes the ideas of God, and who is the God that they are worshiping? That judgmental, vengeful, drop-in-the-hammer God of the Old Testament. And you've got every New Testament church like, that is not the God that we worship. That's not Him. It's Jesus. What's the difference? When you say church, that can mean anything. Church could be a place that you go and you take sacraments and perhaps that you were baptized or whatever. You go and you do these things, you stand up, sit down, recite after me, little call and answer, things like that. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Do you realize that the gathering together today on Sunday morning is not biblical? Did you know that? Now let me clarify, it's not unbiblical either. But there is no mandate that we gather together on Sunday morning. We just do. You know why we do it? Most people don't know why we do it. Just because that's what we've always done. That would be the number one answer. Do you realize that it is just as spiritual and accepting to God to get together on a Monday afternoon? It'll feel weird. Do you know why the church gathers on Sunday? Because many of the church believe that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday. You remember that verse where Jesus said, by the way, I'm changing the Sabbath? Neither do I. The Catholic Church did that back in the 300s. But I mean, again... We do all this stuff. We don't know why. We don't ask the question why. We just do. And we don't ask good questions because we don't even know what the identity of the church is. What is the church? Well, the church is found in Scripture. And what we see in the assembling of the saints together is what we need to begin to look at. But in order to get to that point, we have to start at the beginning. 
First of all, with the definition, which we've read. We're not going to read it again. You read it yourself. What is an identity? Those are an identity. Something that separates something. It makes it distinct. It is recognizable. There was a guy that I used to go to church with, and he was really easy to pick out of a crowd. Do you know why? Because he couldn't match nothing. His socks would be purple, his pants lime green. I mean, it's bad if you, I notice you don't match. It's bad. When I used to wear shirts and ties all the time, thank God that we've been redeemed from that kind of nonsense. But I'd buy them in sets so I didn't have to guess because I don't match nothing either. But I'm not lime green pants and purple socks guy. Although that's probably in now. I don't even know. If I think it's ugly, that means it's probably trendy. Okay? But anyway, you could pick him out of a crowd because he just, you'd just be like, oh, look at all these nice dressed people. Ooh, not that one. It was his characteristic. It was what he did. It's kind of like I've talked about this before. If you go to a restaurant and you see a bunch of older ladies all wearing red hats at a restaurant, what are they? It's their calling card. You know what it means to the server? It means no tip. That's what it means. CMA, let's use them as an example. A lot of people ride motorcycles. They probably tip really well. I have no idea, okay? But you can ride a motorcycle and not be a part of CMA. You can actually be a part of CMA and not ride a motorcycle, is what they tell me. But there is something unique about it. They wear those vests or the things. It's got the marker on them that sets them apart. When people see that, they're like, oh, I know what that is. We do it with logos all the time. We call branding and all this kind of stuff. So what is it that a Christian uses as their logo? What makes them unique? What makes them stand out? What makes the church separate from the rest of the world? What does a Christian look like? How do they talk? How do they act in every phase of life? These are questions that we have to begin to answer. And to get there, we've got to begin to understand what is considered rudimentary. And sometimes the basics get lost in the weeds because we'll glaze over them assuming we know the answers without really drilling into them and say, you know, what does that mean? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we have to define our terms. It says, if anyone is in Christ, implying not all are. There's a distinction between in Christ and not in Christ. Is that fair? If we just left it at that, that would be simple enough. Now, how one ends up there is a whole other thing. But if you're in Christ, then what happens? You're a new creation. There's a distinction between the new and the old. Created new, old is gone, passed away. That means dead. All things have become new. So this verse is making a truth claim that if you are in Christ, the old man has died and gone and has gone away and no longer exists. This new man is created in the image of Christ. Okay, fine. That's great. We get that. But what about some of these other verses? See, what we're clearly saying here is there's a distinction. There is something that separates because the results are different. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, at his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. 
but you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, and do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, what's the distinction here? It's truth from not truth. And what happens with not truth? Well, the time's coming because they have itching ears where they're going to raise up these people who will tell them what they want to hear and not listen to truth. They'll just go with what they want. And guess what? That time is here. And you know what else? That time was here then too. Because it hasn't, it didn't just start happening. We act like this is such a new thing. Like, oh my goodness, can you believe it? Yeah, I mean, there are things that would go on that would definitely is not good, but it's been not good for a long time. It's kind of like prophecy. We always hear this, and we're always so focused on this. Like, man, Jesus is coming any day. Look at the world around us. It's got to be that way. That's true. He is. He's coming any day, and tomorrow will be a day closer than it was the day before. But it's, they've been saying that since he left. I mean, there's scripture about it. And I told you guys this before, but I mean, I've seen writings from the 1800s where they said, man, Jesus is coming any day. Every prophecy needed to be fulfilled has been fulfilled for him to return. Where's he at? He's coming any day now. Here we are. We're still waiting. You see, there is a truth and a not truth. There's a distinction there. Romans 8 verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. For th- so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, so what do we see here? You've got a carnal mind and you've got a spiritual mind. And one is death and one is life. Which one do you want? Truth is, the carnal mind. That's where we go. If we wanted the spiritual mind, how do we do it? We renew our mind. Whose job is it? It's yours. Why don't we do it? I don't know, but we don't. We love living as victims. I don't know why this is. Is it a human characteristic or what it is? But we have victim mentality like, woe is me. The devil's attacking me. He's coming against me. And most of the time, he's getting credit for your own stupidity. I mean, it's just being truthful. We have done dumb things. Guys, I've done financial counseling for years. And you know the number one problem that people have with finances? Finances. What do you do with it? Well, you pay your bills. Did you know this? Paul and I were discussing this this morning. That if you write a check for more money than you have in your account, that will not end well for you. I don't know if you know that or not. Do you realize that if you go and charge up a credit card that you can't pay back, that won't end well for you? Seems like common sense. My aunt, when I was in high school, I'm from Detroit, if you didn't know, that's why I have street cred, and... She worked at a calling center for a credit card company. And she told me that every day she would get a phone call from somebody livid that they got a bill to pay back the credit card. I know, it seems like common sense, right? People are dumb. They thought they got free money. She said every day it happened. It's amazing. Why is that? Because we don't think. And that is part of the problem that we have in the church is we stop thinking. We just started opening our mouths as baby birds, accepting everything that gets put in there. And then we go with whatever feels good in the moment. Whatever feels good in the moment, we're just like, yep, that's the will of God. God is good when we get what we want, and then we don't talk about it when we don't. You see, there's a distinction between truth and a lie. 
and the carnal mind and the spiritual mind and life and death. There's a clear line of demarcation that takes place that separates all of these things. There's a line between the church of God and everything else that is named church. There are distinctions that are there. And we have to understand this. We have to dig into this. We have to get to the point where we understand exactly who we are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, what do we see here? There are two types of weapons. There's carnal weapons, and there's spiritual weapons. And Paul is saying that we as believers do not use carnal weapons. Now, don't take that too far. Don't misunderstand me. But the things that we are battling against is not the people that we are seeing. It is the spirits behind all of this. The weapons of our warfare aren't carnal, but they are mighty in God. And what do they do? They pull down strongholds, they cast down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against what? It's the knowledge of God. Do you realize that you'll stop seeking knowledge when you assume you discover truth? When you think you've got it all figured out, you're like, well, nope, I know, that's how this works. I don't need to look anymore. Never stop digging. And the thing is, is that we approach this, we know this, we read this, we hear it, and yet we still act carnally. You see, when crisis hits, there should be a distinction between a blood-bought, born-again, Bible-believing, spirit-filled Christian and the rest of the world on how we react. And unfortunately, too often, that is not the case. We react and respond exactly how they are. The knowledge of God, who He is, what He does, all of this, there are these things that are coming against that. Our weapons take care of that. We bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So as I told you guys in the last couple of weeks, there are four fundamental questions that every believer has to answer. Number one, who is God? Number two, who am I in relationship to God? Number three is how do we worship Him? And number four is who is my enemy. Now, we started with who is God. Do you realize that you don't even have to be a believer to, have to deal with these questions? Because as we saw, when we look at the questions is who is God, that's a loaded question today. Because God can mean anything. And what do we see in these videos that we showed and all of that? Well, God is in you and God is in me and God is in the flowers and God is in the trees. God is in the kittens, not the cats. God is in the puppies and the dogs, most of them. I mean, but that's what, you know what we call that? We call that pantheism. And then we've got these other religions that say, well, God is Buddha. God is Krishna. God is Allah. God is what? And we all shake our head, no, he's not. That's not right. But how do you know? How do you know they're not right? It's a little arrogant to just assume that you're right and they're wrong. You do not to get to be the wife in the relationship with the rest of the world. Where you're always right, and no matter what they say is wrong. It's not how that works. Stop staring at me like that. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, but reality is, is we don't know. What do we know about God? If it is outside of this, it's a matter of opinion. You see, this is the foundation. This is how God has revealed himself to us. Because you, you realize that people will tell you that they feel God. Can you feel God? Sure. Absolutely. The presence of God is extremely powerful. Do you know where you find out about that? It's right here. We watched the presence of God when they uh, Hanukkah the temple and the priest couldn't even go in because the presence of God was so strong. Did that stop at some point? No. It still goes on today. That can happen. But do you realize that your feelings could lie to you? Do you realize that Mormons will tell you that the reason they know what they believe is true is because what they call the burning in the bosom that they feel the spirit? It's this burning in your stomach. It makes me cringe a little bit when somebody says, well, God's telling me because I can feel it right here. Okay, that's great. Let's examine that. Let's, let's check that out because that could be wrong. It could be indigestion. Maybe you're a little gassy. I don't know. Whatever. It's going to be a fun day. Can you tell? I went down to the Oklahoma-Nebraska game yesterday, so I had too much time in the sun, and we lost, so I'm a little wound up, okay? But the thing is, is that we have to get back to the basics. Who is God is a question that everybody has to answer, and they're all searching for him, even if they try to deny his existence, because if they deny his existence, who is God? They are. Because now it's what I want and how I feel and all of this, and it doesn't matter. So no matter what, we've got to deal with this. And then we've got to deal with that. Who am I in relationship to him or her? Because that matters. Because whoever this God is, who I am in dealing with him, her, them, they, z, zer, whatever. Too much? All right. Who, how I deal with them matters. Because we see examples of gods that how you approach them really makes a difference. If you can approach them. We see Moloch in the Old Testament. How did you approach that god? You brought a child. And you sacrificed it. Still do that today. We see all sorts of gods. You see this all the time. Bring a sacrifice. Do this. How did they approach God in the Old Testament? God's presence was in the tabernacle or the temple. And they'd have to bring sacrifices. And who got to approach the presence of God? One man was the high priest, and there was a series of orderly events that had to take place. Now how do we approach the presence of God? We don't approach it. We're in it. It's in us. We are the temple of the living God. We enter boldly into that throne room. We find grace and mercy at the time that we need it. It's completely different now because now the wall of separation has been lifted. But there is a distinction. And so who I am in relationship with him and how I worship him matters because I don't get to dictate that. He does. That's why they call him God. They don't call you God, they call him God. So, who is God? Well, the big truth is, there's one, but who he is matters. How does he respond? We began to dig into that, we looked at the different names of God as examples. Alright, you could see a lot in the name, it says, don't take my name in vain. Don't take on my name, you're not going to live it. Because when you take on the name of God, much like when you take on the name of Christian, there are strings attached, there's expectations put with that. Right now, the expectations are, you need to be loving. Just love where everybody where they are. It doesn't matter. We know that's not true. But we treat God today as if he's some sort of an accessory, like a watch that you put on when you go into a nice dinner, or a tie that you wear if you're going out somewhere fancy, and then you take it off and you put it aside, and I'll just bring him back out when I need him. When things get bad, I'll bring him back out. Outside of that, I got this. 
That's what the Israelites did. We see it through the book of Judges. They did it all the time. And that is how the church acts today. And just like the word love has completely lost its meaning, it's been transformed, it doesn't even, it's unrecognizable. God has different meanings from its intended use. Your experience is critical, but it can't be the final arbiter of who God is because who God is is outside of your experiences. It doesn't matter. Because you've had people that have had negative experiences, you've had people that have had positive experiences. You've had people that have had no experiences. You have to go beyond something that is objective. God is holy and sovereign, omniscient. He's immutable. He's absolutely unchanging. He's bigger than all of us. So who is God? You could spend months going into that, digging through the scriptures. And I encourage you to do that. Because if anything, please do not stop here. Don't come here on Sunday. Come here on Wednesday and think, I got this. You should be digging in. You know what you should be checking on? If what I'm telling you is right, you should be doing what Acts 17.11 says. You should be saying, well, he's made this claim. Let's see what Scripture says. Because just because I'm throwing Bible verses out doesn't mean they're used correctly. You know who else did that? Satan. The source matters. So when we look at who we are in relationship with God, this is number one. We know we are valued because we looked at what God did. We began to get into that last week. In Genesis, you have paradise lost. In Revelation, you have paradise regained. Everything that happened in between is the steps that God took to bring mankind back to himself. Not animal kind, not fish kind, not bird kind, mankind. There's a distinction between man and the animals. It's what God did. You don't do that for something that's invaluable. Think about it. The animals were sacrificed for atonement for man. The value is on man. The animals were the tool. Jesus, the Son, God Himself, was the sacrifice for the atonement for man. It matters. It's very clear that there is a distinction. Adam brought sin and he brought death. Christ was sinless and he brought life. Death's destroyed, sickness destroyed, sadness destroyed. It's all coming. The relational status between man and God is what is at stake here. And if you don't understand it, you will walk bound up the rest of your life. Because we don't have the relationship that Adam had. It's different. And in one sense, you could say it's better. But we'll get into that. John chapter 15. Let's look there. Let's get into this today. We're going to start in verse 12. It's a verse you all know. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that the fruit should remain. And whatever you ask the father in my name he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. Now here's the thing. We have to begin to break this down. First of all, the word love. It's a commandment that you love one another. Okay? Fair enough. Simple enough. Piece of cake. What does that mean? Well, he tells us. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends. You see, that love is being expressed in how he is acting upon it. He lays down his life for those that he cares for. It's the same thing that we do. Now, the difference here is, is that we've got to begin to understand something. This love that God gave, that he poured out, was distinct and 
only for mankind. Did he die for the angels? No. Did he die for the animals? No. Did he die for the chair that you sit in? No. So if you don't like the color, that's okay. doesn't matter. The thing is, is that he died for a purpose. Now, when he gets into this, it's just very distinction, a very big distinction that's being made here. And oftentimes we just glaze over this. He says, greater love has no, man, uh, has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servant, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. Now, here's the thing. Do you know how monumental it was for him to call them friend and not servant? Because there's a distinction here. When a rabbi chose his disciples, whoever that was, they were not chummy. They were being taught. They served him at the discretion of this rabbi. And Jesus said, I'm not calling you servant. I'm calling you friend. Here's the difference. A servant is obedient and he's loyal. But there is no intimacy. But a friend may be obedient and they may be loyal. But there's also a level of intimacy. You see, Jesus wasn't just saying, here it is. You just take it for what it's worth and go do it. Every step of the way, he explained why he was doing it. Everything he did had an explanation. He was giving them the whys and not just the whats. And that's important. Because there's only two people in the entire Old Testament that were called the friends of God. You want to take a guess at who they were? What's that? That's one, I said two. Oh, man, Yoli, as always, stepping up. I'm telling you, next week she'll be teaching. It's Abraham and Moses. Now, that's interesting because there are a lot of good guys. Where's David? Man after God's own heart, never called his friend. That's interesting. But these two were instrumental in bringing forth the covenants that led to the new covenant. Now, that might be a coincidence, okay? But I find it fascinating. You see, there is a distinction between a friend and a servant. You guys picking up on the trend here. There's a distinction between all of these words. And God has used these. Now, let's go to Psalm chapter 1. And I'd like you, if you've got a Bible, to turn in your Bible or click on your phone or whatever device you may have. Because I want you to look at this. I've got it up on the screen. Psalm chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. Most of the time, we read the Psalms, and we're like, I'm just trying to get something that makes me feel good out of the Psalms. There's some weird ones in there. But regardless. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now, did you catch the two distinctions? What were they? You could say the righteous and the unrighteous. The godly and the ungodly, how we would save it, say it is the saved and the unsaved. And if you separate these, you'll notice it's talking about two groups of people. 
And the first group is the unsaved. Go ahead and go. I've got this up here. I've got a whole list of them. Eh, keep going. There you go. Unsaved. In verse 4 through 6, it talks about how they're separated from God. In verse 1, it talks about how they're sinning against God. And again, in verse 1, they're scorning at the truth of God. But then you get to the saved, or the believers, or the righteous, or whatever you want to call it. They're separated to God, not from Him. They're serving only God, and they have a quest for truth. Now, there's a distinction, is there not? Let's go back and read this again. Verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So, you want to be blessed? What do you do? Don't turn to ungodly people for wisdom. Nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Those aren't good things. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. I like that. I like verse 2. I'd rather be there than in, you know, verse 1. Verse 4, the ungodly are not so. There's the distinction. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Remember, what you want to keep drops to the ground. That's how they separate it. And the chaff would blow away in the wind. That was what you didn't want. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Now, let me explain this because this gets misunderstood. It seems as if it says, because we don't understand the language, that the ungodly will not stand in judgment. But that's not what it says. It says in the judgment. And what happens is that when you were being judged for something, whatever that may be, you would stand up and be able to make your case before them. The ungodly will not be allowed to do so. There's a distinction. Sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In other words, they can't get up and tell you why they're good. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Do you guys see the distinction? You've got godly, ungodly. Now, let's take it to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are the least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to the law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now that sounds a lot what we just read in Psalm chapter 1, does it not? Because Paul is getting on to them. You've got an issue with a brother in the Lord. And you're taking that issue before the ungodly instead of doing what? Allowing the godly, who is rooted and grounded in the word, to make the decision, to help arbitrate that. And that's what we do. He's getting on them because... The wisdom comes from here, comes from Scripture. There is the distinction. The ungodly comes from what? Whatever source material they choose. Whatever law happens to be in place, whether it's godly or ungodly. We are talking about the IRS this morning and how they extort people. Terry, you want to say anything about that? Nope, no, because they might be listening. But I mean, the thing is, is that the law was written one way, but the way they're interpreting is wrong. 
And so they're basically just looking for money. Well, who do you go to for that? Well, that's an ungodly thing. I don't want to get into the whole tax thing, okay? As you know, I'm not a fan. But the thing is, is that here we've got a distinction between who should be making these decisions, the godly or the ungodly. Do you realize that when you're in close quarters with somebody, you may have issues with them from time to time? Am I alone in this? I mean, you're all like, not me. My life is perfect. I mean, you ever work with somebody who you love almost every day, and I say almost, and then there's that one day you're like, you are driving me nuts. I just had a six and a half hour car ride last night with a four-year-old and a ten-year-old. He's breathing my air. Get in the back of the truck. Have your own air. No problem solved. Anyway, I digress. Let's look at verse 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to the law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. So, I mean, he is just dropping the hammer on them. He's letting them have it. Remember, guys, I know this is hard to get past, but we really think everything is so sugar-coated today because of how we live. It's rough. I mean, when Paul says that I withstood Peter to his face, that doesn't mean that he wrote on a note or sent him a text message that said, listen, I'm really not happy about that. He's not hiding behind a screen. He stood up from him and said, Peter, you're wrong and you know it. I mean, he's, th- that is how this is worded. He's letting him know, you guys are doing all of this stuff. You're acting carnal. You're acting like they are. And there should be a distinction between the way you respond and the way they respond. And you're acting just like them. Now let's go on. Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now what does that mean? The unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, the righteous will. There's the distinction. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revelers, extortioners, IRS right there, Terry, there you go, will inherit the kingdom of God. None of those will. Because that's the world's way. As such were some of you. So some of these people did these things. But you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So they were that way. And what happened? The old man died. The new man was made alive. He's getting onto them because they're going back to their carnal ways of how they're handling these things. Instead of doing what? Following God's way. We see this stuff all the time. It's laid out clearly throughout Scripture. It happens all the time. It happens in our lives. We respond carnally. Let me give you examples of this, okay? There are things in our lives that we see all the time, and people will make an excuse to do whatever they want. So they will tell you there is a Christian swinging group. Do you know what swinging is? It's not in the playground. That's all the further I want to go with that discussion, okay? But here's what they say. We are reaching people for the Lord. Oh, I bet you are. I bet you get an audience. I, listen, y'all are like acting like I'm crazy. These things exist. Because you can throw the word Christian on anything because it's lost its meaning. It can be whatever you want. We could have Christian axe murdering groups. Why not? 
God, give me the keys to the smiter. I'll take care of these problems. You know, that's, that, that's an example. But we do this on smaller things, too. That seems extreme, but let's talk about smaller. Paul said very clearly, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But to be an active full-time member in the church in America today is somebody who goes two out of four Sundays. What do they do the other two Sundays? Well, they may sleep in. They may be going to ball games. They may be going to the lake. They may be doing whatever they want. Because church no longer is a priority because the church is not recognizable. And we don't even know why we go. We just go because we've always went, and we don't know why. We just do it. It's not a good place to be. But Paul is very clear that there's a reason that we assemble ourselves together. And what do we do? Well, I'm out in nature. I'm hunting. And, and I, I just feel God in the trees and stuff like that. Whatever. That's an excuse to do what you want. There's a purpose in being grounded with one body of believers that you iron sharpens iron. You know what you can't do? You can't sharpen very well if you go to this church one Sunday and that church another, and I'm just going to go wherever, because at least I'm in church. Now you might caught the letter of the law, but not the spirit behind it, because it's not going to church. There's a reason we assemble. There's a reason we dig in. There's a reason we do all of this stuff, and we don't often look at it. We just like, well, it just I want to do what I want to do. And I just wish people would admit that. That would make my life so much easier. I had a conversation with a young person uh, not too long ago. It was this summer. And they told me, and, and you guys will know who I'm talking about, so in the back, because some of you were in the truck with me, we're having this discussion. But they made a comment that is like, you know, I've quit listening to about half of the rap music that I listen to. It's not good rap. It's not Christian rap, which is probably not good rap either, but that's a whole different conversation. I don't know if there is good rap, I, you know, whatever. But the thing is, is it's like, it's foul, it's filthy, it's disgusting, it's bad stuff. And he made the comment, he's like, I just can't stop listening to it altogether. And I said, well, let's stop for a moment. Because you could stop listening to it. You can't stop breathing. That will only last for so long. But you can't stop listening to anything. Use your word. I've chosen not to stop listening to it because I like it. And he finally said, okay, well, yeah. I'm like, good, you've admitted it. Now, let's deal with it. And that's the problem. We lie to ourselves. We're like, oh, this is good. I can do what I want, drink what I want, be what I want, say what I want, live how I want, whatever. There's a distinction between the followers of Christ, followers of the way, and the rest of the world. Those distinctions are very clear. It's all throughout Scripture. Now, let's look at something real quick. We're going to go to the book of Revelation. Isn't that going to be fun? Okay? I'm going to do this quickly because I know we're short on time and you may be hungry and there's food involved and all of that kind of stuff. This is not meant to go through the entirety of the book of Revelation to make it all understanding. I'm not going to explain any symbolism. I'm not going to do anything. We're going to go fast. We're dealing with the seals and the trumpets, okay? Not the seals like, oh, 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 seals, but the things were sealed, okay? I'm sorry, squirrels with knives in my head. Y'all know how it goes. It's whatever. My wife is covering her face praying, Lord, rapture now, okay? So when these seals are broken, those lead to the trumpets. The first trumpet is when the hail is, fire is mixed together with blood. One third of the world's trees are burned up. It's a plague. All the grass is consumed. The second trumpet comes in, and a third of the sea turns to blood, a third of the ship sink, a third of the ocean life dies. It's not going good so far, okay? The third one is where the fresh water, the lakes, rivers, all of that, it's a star blazing torch, falls from the sky, it's a poison, a third of the water supply. Everything's in thirds. Numbers matter. Just know that. Fourth trumpet is uh, where a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, stars, everything turns dark, a third of the day was without light, and a third of the night. You know how it goes. 
Okay. After this, you get seeing this, this eagle, or some versions say uh, an angel, cry with a loud, loud voice, says, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. So in Revelation chapter 8, I think it's verse 13, he's giving a warning about what's going to come. Like, oh, you thought it was bad before. Just buckle up, buttercup. We're just getting started. So the fifth trumpet, here comes the demonic locust. And if you've been around since the 80s and 90s, you know that those locusts are the Black Hawk helicopters that come up and they blow stuff up, right? That's not what it is. That's just what they said, okay? And this plague starts and there's all of this stuff going. The locusts have a king. Uh, The the king is Abaddon. There's all of this stuff that's going on. Had like woman's hair and teeth like a lion. I mean, it's like if you drew this thing, if you were a police sketch artist, Drawn, it'd be the freakiest looking thing. Like Stephen King would be all over this. Okay, it's bizarre, and all of this stuff is going on. It's bad, and we're just getting warmed up. Now we're going to start in Revelation chapter nine. I'm just kind of giving you a quick precursor to that, so you're kind of fresh in your mind of what's about to come. Okay, verse one: the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree. But only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, do we see a distinction? Those who are sealed, those who are not. They could not do anything unless God allowed it, and those who were sealed were off limits, as well as some other things. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. So, not only do they want to die, they won't be able to die. It's bad. So, the authority was not there to kill them but just torment them. Verse 7, The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running to battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were, uh, and there were stings in their tails. The power was to hurt men five months. You can see how weird these things look. We don't know exactly what these are. And they had his king over them, and the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek his name is Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Now, that's trumpet five. That's the locust. It's bad. Fair enough? You guys get it? Let's go to uh, verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So here it goes. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, For their power is in the mouth and in the tails, and for their tails are like serpents having heads with them, and they do harm. Now, this is bad, right? One-third of mankind is finally killed. It's all going bad. Now, watch what happens. Verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues... 
did not repent of the works of their hands. That they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What does it take to convince somebody? Apparently that's not enough. And the reason is, it's not a matter of being convinced. They don't care. You see, there's a distinction between the sealed and the unsealed. The sealed, where are they at? They're not mentioned, are they? Why? Because it doesn't matter. That's not happening to them. And you would think, you'd look over and be like, well, man, they've got it going good. Maybe I should uh, rethink my life choices here. But they won't repent because they don't want to. You see, you've got to understand the beginning. The family of God at creation was all created beings, angels and mankind. This is the family of God. They housed in Eden. That's where they lived. That's where God's throne was. It was on the mount to the north. Separation of man from God is found in Genesis chapter 3. Because they sinned. They went the other way. Then God, doing what he does, fast forward a little bit, he chooses a nation from among those people. And you see this in Deuteronomy 32 as well as other places. I'm not going to rehash this because we've talked about this a lot. And then now you have a new distinction between Israel and everybody else. And what do they call them? Gentiles. What are we? Gentiles. They're now distinct. Israel is distinct as a nation, as a people group. They were under covenant from Abraham. They were under covenant from Moses. And there were stipulations along the way. But God makes a way for Gentiles to come into fellowship with God. How did he do that? Well, you had to leave the nation from which you came, reject your heritage, reject everything, reject your false gods, and you would come under covenant with God, Yahweh. You would become circumcised. You would keep the commandments. You would sacrifice just as that you would worship God the way that he desired to be worshipped and forsake all others. And now you could come into the family of God, And the Israelites were to treat you, this is where the word stranger or alien comes in, sojourner, as if you were a natural born Jew. Because there is no longer a distinction between them and you because you have come under covenant with Yahweh. Then you fast forward to the new covenant. And the new covenant gets separated into two groups of people. But it's not the two groups we often think of. Let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read for just a bit. We're almost done, I promise. We're going to start in verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Now, again, anytime you're reading something, you've got to start with, who wrote it? Yoli, who wrote it? Oh, there you go. She's like thinking, uh, 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 I put her on the spot there. Yeah, that's all right. I get that. So, it's nap time. Paul wrote it. Who did he write it to? The Ephesians. Who was the pastor of the Ephesians? Timothy. Right. So, you're putting all these things in place so you kind of understand the context. And Ephesus was a very pagan culture. This ends up being the largest church of over 50,000 people, and Timothy was his pastor. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us before him, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, stop for just a second. Is there a distinction made here? Absolutely. That we're holy and without blame before him, which means that others are not. 
having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace by which he has uh, made us accepted in the beloved. This is kind of his introduction. Now, here, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in himself. Now, stop. What does this mean? The redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Redemption through his blood means what? Forgiveness of sins. Now, this was a big deal because you realize, you've got to understand this, that sacrifice in the old covenant did not bring forgiveness of sin. It brought a covering. But now sins are being forgiven. There's a distinction here. And he made known to us, verse 9, the mystery of his will that was according to his good pleasure that he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have attained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Now let's stop again. You notice that word sealed. That means if you're sealed, there is somebody who is not sealed. We see another distinction. How did that happen? After you trusted when you heard what? The word of truth. You mean Paul didn't just let his actions speak? No, he used words. Remember, I get on you about that. The gospel of your salvation, you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession that is you and I. Verse 15, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, and that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now stop for a minute. Us who believe. After I heard of your faith, Give thanks for you, that he may give you the spirit of what? What are we seeing the distinction? When you're a believer, you are now different. You're separated. You're not like them. So, verse 20, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. The principality, power. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against every principality and power and strong, all these things. It's the same stuff. Where is Jesus? He's seated far above all of that. He put all things under his feet and gave to him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is the church? It is his body. Let's read that again. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So now we are connected to Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1. You he made alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sin. Another distinction. You were dead. You're now alive. Who did it? He did it. 
in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Do you see a distinction again? You were once here, you've been pulled out of there. You were dead here, now you've been made alive. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So we were like them, but we're not now. There's a distinction made. So what does that mean if the church is acting like them? It's a good question. Could you question if somebody's born again? If they are doing these things, you could question that. Ultimately, we don't know because we judge everything by its fruit, but we don't know. But what we do know is Paul is making a clear distinction because if you are born again, you should be over here. But God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which with he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now where are we? We are seated with him at the right hand of the Father. Verse 7. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, where are we seated? Christ ahead, we are the body, we are seated with them. It's not decapitated, it's not a floating head up there. There's none of that kind of stuff. Where the head looks, the body turns. Where the head goes, the body goes with it. If you ever see a head head a direction without its body, you just need to leave. All right? Things are not going well that day. But what do we see? We are His workmanship. Who is we? Those who were dead but now are alive. The distinction is those who are alive are his workmanship, which means those who are dead are not. Verse 11. Therefore, so because of everything that I just said, this is what Paul said, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh. Now there's the distinction. Remember, Israel and everybody else. You were Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision made by the flesh uh, by flesh by hands again what are we seeing here this is a covenantal thing that at the time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise having no hope and without God in the world not good but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ so you were here, and Israel was there, but now you've been brought in by the blood. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So it is no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile. It's changed. Because now we are come together as one. Just like it was in the beginning. This is all part of the workmanship of God bringing things into fruition. Are we completed yet? No, we're not, we're not through Revelation yet. We ain't seen them locusts. 
we won't see those locusts. I mean, maybe from the shelf we'll see them like, oh, that looks bad. But the thing is, is that he's brought them together. How did he do it? Through the blood of Christ. How do you receive that? That's where the distinction comes in. There are those over here. There are those over here. We were separated from God as Gentiles brought together through the blood of Christ as one new man. Now let's go on, verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Remember, I told you what that word meant. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Now, stop for a minute. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer separated, but you are fellow citizens with the members of the household of God. Remember, in the beginning, it was the household of God. Being built on the foundation of what? The apostles, who's teaching now, and the prophets, who came before, prophesying what they said. Jesus came and fulfilled the prophecy. He was the chief cornerstone. Building and being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord of which you are now. Now jump down to chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, in other words, all of the things he said. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So there's no longer Jew and Gentile. It is the body of Christ. Where is the distinction now? It was Jew and Gentile. It was a whole bunch of stuff, but now it's disciple and world. That's the distinction. Those are the only two distinctions. You are either a disciple of Christ or you are not. There is no in-between. The idea of somebody who just like walks the fence or calls himself a Christian, that means that if you aren't a follower of the way, then you are not. You are still dead in your trespasses. You were bought with the price. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were made whole. You were dead, but now you're alive. So the distinction between believer and unbeliever, the church today should be marked by behavioral characteristics of how we act and how we respond. How you believe when you believe scripture and how you act is when you hear of somebody sick, you immediately pray for them because you know that believers lay hands on the sick. When you hear of somebody who is lost, you immediately begin to minister to them and give them the truth of the gospel. When you hear of somebody who is born again or has been blessed with something or whatever, you rejoice with them. When you hear of somebody suffering, you rejoice with them. Suffering in Christ because greater is their reward. Remember what the apostles said that when they, and I think it's Acts 4, Acts 5, somewhere in there. They counted it awesome that they were worthy to be persecuted for the name of Christ. There's a distinction between believer and unbeliever. And the church today has tried to muddy those lines. And do you know why? Because our metrics for success are carnal. 
How much money's coming in? How many people are attending? We use carnal metrics. We use the same thing that they use for every other event that is out there, every other group that is out there. That is not the mark of a believer. The mark of a church is transformed lives. You should ask yourself that. Most of us have been believers for the better part of our lives. And with that comes the marker of, okay, I've got a job to do. And if I were to look back at my life and say, how many people have I ministered the gospel to and led to the Lord, at a minimum, just preached, I think it would make us sick. Because you've got to understand something. Who we are in Christ, who am I in relationship to God, is what God went through to bring me to Him. And now, He separated me from the rest of the world. Because now I'm in a distinct class. And I am seated at the right hand of the Father. Are you guys seeing this? You've got to understand this. Because it says you were once those things. But you no longer are. Who said that? Those are the words of God. He said that. If you don't believe me, believe Him. Because you will try to get held here. And be in bondage your entire life. Because of things that have happened in the past Again, we've got this victim mentality in the church as bad as anywhere else. And we try to do carnal things with, oh, I just need to get counseling. We need to get this stuff and all of that. No, we need to get set free. Because we are no longer that. We are over here, made whole, set apart by God. He said it, not me. I'm going to believe it. That's the difference. Who am I in relationship to God? God went to painstaking care to make sure that I could walk as a believer, full of the Holy Spirit, and we have got to do it. Your life has value. Your life is set apart by God. Our actions should match that gift. But we tend to take it for granted. We've got work to do. So who am I in relationship with God? I am who He has made me to be. I am right before Him. If you can accept those two things, the rest of the stuff will begin to wash away and you'll no longer deal with a lot of the bondage that the enemy tries to bring us in because you'll stand on the truth let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you that it is true and we thank you that in all things that you have given us that you have set us apart that you have made us whole that you have said that we are your sons that we are your daughters that we are your body and we no longer have to live in bondage to the enemy, that we're no longer bound by death and sickness and sin and all of that, Lord, that you have set us free and made us whole. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that. And we thank you that in everything that we say and do, that it brings glory to your name. And I thank you that the revelation of who you've made us to be will begin to be poured out in our heart, that we will understand that and walk in it, in the fullness of it, Lord. Not confused by the things of this world and not drawn in by the carnality of things that portray themselves as godly, Lord. That we will stick with the word and follow you everywhere it leads. I thank you, Lord, for all that you've done and continue to do. Lord, I thank you for the opportunities that we have to gather together each and every week. That we are growing together and learning together and walking in the fullness of your power and of your word, Lord. And I thank you for opportunities that each and every day that we will be a representative of you because we are set apart as a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. 
Lord, that you'll convict us of our sins, that we will not walk in carnality and, and walk in the ways of this world and the wisdom of men, Lord, but we will stand in the wisdom of what you have poured out in us. And we thank you, Father, for all that you've done. Lord, we thank you for this meal that we're about to partake. As we fellowship together and we just spend time together, Lord, I thank you that your spirit continues to move there. And I thank you, Lord, that we are strengthened and encouraged to go out and do the work that you have called us to do, Lord, that you'd be glorified in every aspect of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, let's eat.